Welcome to Blockchain Inside, the podcast co-produced by the International Data Engineering and Science Association, Purdue Blockchain Lab, and CastBox. Our vision is to connect everyone in the blockchain industry and explore the most up-to-date news. We hope this podcast will be educational, easy to understand, and inspirational for all our listeners. I'm Coach Culbertson, and today we have Christian Kamir back with us. Christian, why don't you take a minute, reintroduce yourself to our audience a bit, and tell us a story about how you started back with blockchain. Hey, Coach. Um, yeah, my background was originally in software. I was a software developer for a little while in the 1980s, decided to become a lawyer instead, unfortunately. But then was fortunate enough that I ended up in, at an internet service provider during the dot-com days. We sold the company, which allowed me then to basically retire from the law, become a venture capitalist, moving to Southern California from Germany, and been in venture capital ever since. And because I'm super interested in the internet space and always and have been thinking for a long time that uh, we never actually developed the World Wide Web, but we developed the commercial web, have been writing on that topic for about a decade by now. So when I first learned about the blockchain, I thought, wow, that's, this could be a great start to actually build the World Wide Web. So here we are. A couple of years later, we formed a venture fund with the exclusive purpose of investing into that space and have been doing so since uh, the Ethereum ICO. Nice. All right, so let's kick it off today with a discussion of stable coins. So the big question is, do stable coins work? Well, we only have a brief history, although that obviously has existed for some time. Um, I was just meeting with Stan Larimer yesterday for a good while, and actually on Sunday. Uh, Stan is um, Dan Larimer's father, and he is heading BitShares now. And on BitShares, um, that stablecoin uh, topic has been on there since, I want to say, 2014 already. Mm. And so pretty successful. But the most visible one would obviously be Tether because it has the largest market cap. And so there the history is a little bit shorter. We can only look back for like a year, year and a half. But with one exception in January where it briefly um, dropped down to 92 cents. It has been pretty stable at 99 cents and or a dollar and one, but um, with a market cap of 2.4 billion, I would expect to stay where it is. And then I look more towards MakerDAO, to be honest, as far as stable coins and the die there. So overall, the answer would be yes, in short. I, I think that will work and... In terms of trading portfolios, everybody should have it in there to kind of balance out and retreat back to um, a virtual currency that's backed to some fiat currency that the trader feels comfortable with. Got it. So let's shift gears around economy and tokens. How would a, a tokenized economy work? I mean, obviously, that's a big topic. I started a book on this last year. And I'm still at the very beginnings. But so if you look at how an economy works, right? So it's heavily influenced by mainly the flow of four things, electricity, information, and currencies. So that makes up a com company's infrastructure. So you want to look at the transportation, energy, telecommunication, and money markets of a particular economy in order to discern um, how it's going to be influenced specifically by 
by blockchains and uh, any tokens being created on top of this. So if you look back a few years ago, uh, Thomas Friedman wrote an excellent book that was titled The World is Flat. And so in that book, he describes how national economies experienced a wave of decentralization, essentially, with the emergence of advanced telecommunication system in form of the internet. So the net removed the friction of having to send physical documents, which is costly and time-consuming. It enabled organizations to distribute information related to jobs to companies and individuals around the world at next to no cost and through email and file sharing. And then voice over IP, another technology enabled by the internet, then further removed the high cost of international call phone calls, which now allows companies to maintain call centers in nations with lower minimum wages. And so the World Wide Web also created, in essence, new marketplaces in which providers from every country with access to that network can compete. So blockchains then have the potential to remove frictions from all infrastructure segments as well as from regulation. So if you're looking back at those categories, transportation, you've got a lot of projects attacking the supply chain management um, friction at the moment. So you've got energy-based blockchain solutions for peer-to-peer -peer sales uh, of energy for people that create directly, i.e. in solar. Uh, and then obviously the last two topics are most important. So telecommunication and internet. So aside from uh, actually redoing the internet infrastructure with world computers, so that's typically what uh, Ethereum is being referred to and the new earth operating system. So that's EOSIO. Um, so they create the what we call the internet of value distribution. You probably have heard this a couple of times. And so what that means is as of today, Transfer of assets often requires at least one or more middlemen, and they are generally compensated for their involvement. So asset, where the ownership is recorded on a blockchain, can reliably be transferred without those rent-seeking third parties. And properties and other items that today require brokers and agents could be traded with much greater efficiencies, and you probably come across a lot of projects in that space already. We do, at least. So economies which empower um, their participants and so mostly their citizens to maintain their ownership records on blockchains will eliminate those unproductive and rent-seeking institutions. And then lastly, and most evidently money, right? As money in, in essence is a technology and it was invented if you read the initial white paper to solve this double coincidence of one's problem, right? It evolved initially from commodity money, where money was represented by precious metals such as silver and gold, and then into fiat money, money by decree. So in fiat money, uh, trust into the commodity was replaced with trust into your government. And so the government then assigns licenses to middlemen such as banks to control the flow of this money. So um, there's one big bank organization that you know as SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. And that organization links more than 11,000 financial institutions in more than 200 countries. And they process like 15 million transactions per day. But as you know, these um, SWIFT transactions can often take days and sometimes if it's internationally weeks to settle and often carry very, very significant fees with them. So when Bitcoin introduced the concept of money over IP, so like voice over IP, it's a peer-to-peer -peer technology, 
this doesn't require any middlemen and uh, no none of the legacy technologies that they, these people employ. So blockchains such as EOSIO, they can already handle more than 100 million transactions per day. So a multiple of what the current SWIFT system handles and there's hardly any cost and uh, no time places attached to that. And then lastly, and that's its own very big topic, is this whole uh, decentralized autonomous organization topic. Um, Forbes just published an article that I wrote recently about that topic. But in essence, it's the idea that you can remove the inefficiencies that for-profit corporations create by making the for-profit motive the main driver of its economic activity by replacing it with for-purpose entities. And so the typical example, I probably have brought this up with you, is if you want the best search engine, then the best search engine is not the one that clubs you with advertising at the first results, but um, removes all that advertising and finds another um, method to get compensated for its um, services. But again, it's probably its own topic, but that's a topic that's going to become most important, in my opinion, for economies at large. All right. Well, that's that was a mouthful. That was a lot. That was beautiful work. <laughs> I, I, I can talk about this topic for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> Let's switch gears to the gaming industry. I know that uh, while we were talking before we were recording, you started to write a white paper around uh, blockchain and gaming. But current games on the blockchain are limited by the technology. So in order to apply to the blockchain, we really need faster and cheaper transactions. What kind of improvements on current day blockchains need to happen to enable game productions on that blockchain? And, well, yeah. okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. I, I, had, I had more, but I think that's a, that's a good start. <laughs> sure, uh, so actually uh, blockchains such as BitShares that I mentioned earlier, which uses graphene, that's also part of USIO, they already support 100,000 transactions per second right now, and probably within the next half year to a year will support millions of transactions per second. But if you wanted to deploy, let's say, Ethereum right now, um, what we see projects do, and they do this for different purposes that I can go into, they create a sidechain, right? Because oftentimes you don't need to record every movement let's say that is happening with inside your game world for example on the blockchain so you, you there's no need to um record the fact that i just bought a sword for let's say the equivalent of one dollar immediately on the blockchain you can reconcile this within the time constraints of the current ethereum implementation although that's obviously going to go faster um, the, the reason why you would want to do this, though, is if you're creating a standard that you can then transfer from one blockchain to the other. So that's something that we are working on right now with a couple of teams. So what that means specifically is, and that's probably the more interesting part, is um, we will be living in a multi-blockchain world. And if you want to be able to transfer your virtual assets from one blockchain to the other, you, 
you need to employ certain standards. And those standards are being created right now, even reaching all the way down into the existing gaming world. So you're probably familiar with all those eSports games that people are playing now where they're building stadiums for that, where people meet by the tens of thousands to play those games. So they're working on mainly two specific engines. And so there's now companies that build software development kits, SDKs for those, that also reach them back into the blockchain. So as a user, how the way you experience that, you can got, buy and maintain one game item and transfer this into something else, into another game, or you can hold it into in your Ethereum-compatible wallet and transfer it to another user, and he or she doesn't even have to play the game, but can then hold this particular item. Got it. Got it. So what chain right now has the most potential to be the chain that many game developers are going to be adopting and using? And why do you think that particular chain has advantages over others? It depends on what you're going for. So Ethereum still has uh, the most developer support. Obviously, that's a very important criteria because BLMX didn't die because it was inferior to VHS, but VHS just had more support. It's kind of the same scenario here. Hmm. At the same time, obviously, uh, EOSIO and the team over there, they're deploying, eno deploying enormous resources to different teams right now to um, provide development kits that make development on the EOSIO blockchain much easier than it is at the moment. So long term, again, uh, the resources that are available to EOSIO are greater uh, than the ones that are available to Ethereum at the moment, whereas Ethereum has the larger development crowd. They might all change or they might just split the market in between them. It really depends as a developer, if you're looking at this, what, what languages are you more comfortable with? For the most part, you're starting out with C++ and you want to add to that. But again, that's probably too nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think that our, that our audience probably digs that nerdiness. So, uh, but let's dig into some some nerd factor here. Let's talk about the difference between delegated proof of stake and proof of stake. So, proof of stake system requires a user to put up a certain number of a cryptocurrency, right? As a stake to be able then to verify transactions, and the creator of a new block is chosen pseudo randomly, depending on the user's wealth and the coins at stake. In the pro-stake system, blocks are forged, not mined. And users who validate transactions and create new blocks in the system, they're called forgers, which is a little odd, but that's the name. And in a delegated proof-of-stake system like USIO, uh, users vote to select witnesses. And those witnesses, um, must have collected then the most votes to earn the right to validate transactions. And users can also just delegate their voting power, that's what happens mostly now, to users who they trust to vote for witnesses on their behalf. And if they ever lose that trust, obviously you're just moving your stake and they will no longer be able to move and um, make their money validating that. And you probably know about the 11, uh, 21 master nodes on USIO. Got it. So let's kind of bring it back out of the, uh, of the technical depths and let's hit a mainstream question because a lot of people have 
this, this really critical question of what are, what's the difference between cryptocurrencies and tokens? Yeah, it's actually a question that Forbes just asked me. So that, that article should come out next week. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so to understand cryptocurrencies, I think what you first should do is just recall the fundamental tenets of what currencies are. So they're units of accounts, the store of value and medium of exchange. So, so you first want to look for those uh, fundamental tenets. So blockchain-based virtual assets, so such as cryptographic tokens, often demonstrate those three characteristics of a currency. However, um, you should always consider when these functions should be seen as a side effect of the objective that's uh, inscribed by their creators into the software code, right? So look at Ethereum. Ether is the virtual asset on the Ethereum blockchain. So Ether... Uh, but is stated as the fuel for operating applications on the platform. So as such, Ether is a functional element in the Ethereum blockchain and application, which use it for the execution of an instruction or computational step. So transaction costs on Ethereum blockchains are consequently also labeled as gas. And like its real-world counterpart, gasoline, uh, this virtual gas should be valued and looked at not as a currency, but as a utility. And so as a token in essence, even though um, if you're just looking for the simple distinction between what's a coin and a token, I think people always use this wrong. It's very simple. Um, the coin is the original currency on its own blockchain. So you, and you can actually segment coin market cap by that. But um, moving on from like the whole token concept, the Ethereum blockchain, as you know, provides an easy to navigate token generation interface. It's referred to as the ERC20 token standard. And the standard basically ensures that all persons that have a wallet um, that adheres to that standard um, can use any token that's being created on that API. And so can... Um, all exchanges that use that standard list, all the tokens that are being created on this API. And that's why you saw the explosion of these tokens. And um, But what's important here is these tokens are often designed for a specific purpose, so as, such as the usage of the token in a new application or a new platform. And there the tokens might fulfill additional functions um, as embedded by a programmer into this particular smart contract. Because at the end of the day, every token is a smart contract, but you define what the smart contract should do specifically. So if you're looking at this often quoted Chuck E. Cheese token, um, and it's cryptographically secured uh, neighbor, so to speak, then these are not meant to be unit of accounts specifically. So they don't really fulfill the currency character. So they are just tokens. They're just a utility of sorts. And even if you're looking at Bitcoin, for example, so Bitcoin, when it was originally created, by the way, Bitcoin lowercase, is, that's the currency. I can't pronounce it, the lower currency, but people always do this wrong. So I like to mention that. It was created with the specific purpose of creating electronic cash, right? As a new medium of exchange. But um, however, because Satoshi limited it to 21 million bitcoins. He made Bitcoin inherently scarce. So even though companies such as, I think, Expedia and Overstock now accept Bitcoin as a form of payments, um, mostly you will see that people hodl it. You have, you have heard that. So 
it's probably mostly to be seen as a store of value and unless it's evolving and it's open source, so it probably will, for the time being, I wouldn't even consider Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency because of that missing element. So if you're looking at it closely, the pure cryptocurrencies are really only uh, Zcash, Dash, Monero, and Bitcoin Cash. And then I'm probably forgetting some, but these are the most prominent ones. Got it. So another movement in our conversation here, uh, let's talk about the Lightning Network. Who is the leader of the Lightning Network, functionality-wise, and how far are they along in their progress to be fully implemented? Yeah, you probably know this, but Lightning Network, you only really need on a couple of blockchains, so specifically Bitcoin, right? And uh, you won't need it on chains such as EOS, IO, and BitChainOS because they're already fast enough. They're already sub-second um, transaction capable. But uh, probably if you're looking specifically for Lightning Network, you want to look towards Blockstream. They raised about just under 80 million, I think $76 million. And they have more than 400 people supporting their code right now. And it's open source. Overall though, if you're just looking at the usage of Lightning Network, um, there's explorers for that. There's really only a few nodes. Well, a few less, like 1,200 nodes last time I checked and only like 4,200 channels, so not so many. So I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that we'll really need it. I put you to sleep. I want to make sure you're finished with that sentence there. Um, So as we bring our podcast on in for a landing here, uh, can you tell us, uh, can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you and if you have any new resources for our blockchain enthusiasts? Sure. Yeah, we are under sasni.co and yeah, I, I talk about these particular topics on average once, twice a week, either at an event or smart people like you that want to know what's going on. So we link to all of those interviews, et cetera, on on our site. And we'll always try to also update this if things change. I call people back and tell them, okay, last time I talked to you was about XYZ topic. Like last week, we had a recording just specific to the whole topic of security tokens. And so um, right now, because things develop so fast, um, whatever yeah. <laughs> I tell you right now, I mean, it might be outdated next week for all I know. Mm-hmm. And I would never claim that I have any specific foresight other than that I spend 24-7 in this particular space and have the luxury of having 100 people pitching us every month on whatever project they want to do. And we have a team that evaluates every single one of them. We're trying to come up with useful criteria that allows us to make a decision whether or not this is a tiny project. So hopefully that helps. But yeah, so there's two, two ways to get in contact. So E, um, we have sort of an ICO underwriting business in a way um, where we take on projects that are already further along. So we, we don't invest in anything that's just a white paper, right? So, but we, we like to work with companies that already developed some useful codes and uh, because we're getting so many requests now, we created an intake form for that specifically so people know what we're looking for and we're not wasting anybody's time. And so that's a useful tool probably for anybody who wants to do a token offering. And other than that, um, 
and making one or two investments a month in the space and usually in the realm between 50,000 to 2 million and solely in, in blockchain technology. So if, if that's something um, that you're looking for, then you might want to get in touch with us. Awesome. Christian, it is always awesome to talk with you. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Sure thing. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for following up with us today, Blockchain Inside. The podcast is co-produced by Ideas, Purdue Blockchain Lab, and CastBox. Please subscribe to our show on castbox.fm slash blockchain lab and leave a comment there if you have any questions. I'm Coach Culbertson. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time.